Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. It's good to see you all. Uh, it is always exciting to us when we come to be with you because we love you so dearly and so many uh, faces and families and uh, memories of serving the Lord together, enjoying life together. So it is really, really great to be here and I bring greetings from Covenant Fellowship. Uh, we love you and pray for you as a church and are just so grateful to be this close and to be able to see each other so often. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 2. I guess Joel already had to turn there. Verses 1 to 3. It says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Heavenly Father, be with us now as we come to your word. Feed us, shape us, transform us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, yesterday we celebrated Christmas, and I got Christmas rice, the Christmas rice. A few years ago, Wendy introduced this to our Christmas dinner, and it might sound simple, it's just white rice, but it is mixed together with quartered navel oranges, toasted pine nuts, a little bit of parsley, Sprinkling of pomegranate mixed with some orange juice all mixed up. And I have to tell you, the first time that she made this. Now, I, I enjoy food and, and I like, you know, to eat things, mostly dessert. But, you know, I'm rarely wowed by a food. But I've got to tell you, the first time that she made this rice, I was talking about it for the rest of the meal. Every single bite, I went back and back and back and kept getting helpings of this. I ate my weight the first year. I said, yes, we should do this again. And so we have it at Christmas. Actually, we started taking it. We'd go someplace for a holiday meal, and I'd tell Wendy, why don't we bring this? I brought it to a Valentine's dinner. You know? Other people have adopted it as Christmas rice. I anticipate it all year round. I can't stop thinking about it. Just the taste of it initiates longing. The flavor makes me want more, and this is the way that we are supposed to be with God's Word. In it, we taste of God's goodness, and it makes us desire more and more and to live lives pleasing to God. The problem that Peter addresses here is that we are prone to neglect God's word and not deal with our sin. See, our natural inclination is to long for sin and put away God's word. It's in tasting God's goodness in his word that reverses that desire. And if we lose a taste for God's goodness in his word, then sin will revive. The only remedy, the only means to put away sin is intense and regular pursuit of and longing for God's 
word. We will not love each other as we ought unless we fervently long for God's word. We will not mature into this glorious salvation without drinking deeply of God's word. God's eternal word saves us and transforms us. God's word is where we find the power to put away sin and live in God's abundant goodness. It's in God's word where we find the power to put away sin and live in God's abundant goodness. And so there's three points this morning. The power of God's goodness, the putting away of sin, and the longing for God's word. So we start with the power of God's goodness. In verse 3 here, Peter says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I say, Joseph, why are you starting at the end of the passage? Because tasting that the Lord is good is the prerequisite for putting away sin and longing for God's word. What he's saying is that you will be able to do these things if you really have tasted that the Lord is good. And he's quoting from Psalm 34 here, verse 8, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The power of God's goodness is that just a taste of it transforms us. Maybe you're familiar with the Pixar movie Ratatouille. In the movie, the, the villain is a food critic, Anton Ego. And he is this dour, sour, mean-spirited, bored-with-life, critical, errant, arrogant, frozen, face-in-a-frown French uh, critic and he comes into their restaurant, and he is out to destroy them. But instead of fine French cuisine, they serve him ratatouille, which is a peasant's meal. It's eaten out in the country, hardly something you would use to impress. And he goes sneeringly, takes one disdainful bite, and then the flavor hits him. The taste, his eyes get wide, and he instantly, we're transported back in his mind, and we see him as a small boy standing in the doorway with a tear in his eye. He having, he's just hurt himself, and there is his mom. She's standing in the kitchen, and she gives him a compassionate look, and she sits him down and gently strokes his cheek, and she serves him a bowl of ratatouille, and comfort spreads across the young boy's face as he tastes it. And then we're pulled back into the present, and the sour-faced ego sits wide-eyed and stunned. He drops his pen. He's overwhelmed by the unanticipated effect of the food and how good it tastes. And in that moment, he is utterly transformed. His face brightens, a huge smile spreads across it. He eagerly takes another bite. He's savoring it. He's enjoying it. He even sends his compliments to the chef. That's a picture of what it means to taste and see. That's the power of God in our lives. When we taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste and see means that we must experience God for ourselves. We must experience the transforming power of God's goodness in our lives. We must have the chance to get a taste and savor His goodness and to be stunned and overwhelmed and amazed that He could be so good. And what is that goodness that we taste? It's the character seen in the gospel. 
As Psalm 34, 6 says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him. God's goodness is seen in the fact that he saves and he redeems. His salvation is for those who are perishing. That's what we just celebrated here with the Incarnation. And Christmas, that God came to earth to save us. The mission of the incarnation is described earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you take a look there, starting in verse 18, it says, You were ransomed. That means bought back from captivity. From the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, that means all human beings were born into captivity and sin and disobedience to God. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. What child is this? Nails and spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Peter says, like a lamb without blemish or spot, Jesus was pure, but died for our impurity. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Jesus existed with God before all eternity, but was made manifest in the last, last times. Emmanuel, God with us, took on flesh and became a man in the person of Jesus. For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, Jesus died on the cross for you. God resurrected him back to life for you and gave him glory. What kind of God would go to such lengths to save a sinful and rebellious people? A good God. A very good God. That's the power of the goodness of God, the power of salvation and transformation. The result of his goodness in the gospel is that so your faith and hope are in God. So have you tasted of God's goodness? There are some of you who are hearing this and you would say you're not a Christian. You can't say, yes, I've tasted of God's goodness. And maybe you're hesitant to taste because you have some questions about God. Why does he let bad things happen? Does he really punish people for eternity if they don't believe in Jesus? And maybe those questions and the potential answers leave a bad taste in your mouth. But I encourage you, take a taste of the goodness of God in the gospel that we just heard. He loves you so much. He gave of his own life to wash away your guilt and sin and to show you his goodness. Believe in him. Trust in him. He will help you with the questions that you have. For others, maybe you're resistant to the taste, to taste and see because there are certain ways that you have been living your life and you don't want to give them up in order to love God with everything that you have. The way that you are living is more valuable to you than having a relationship with the all-glorious, completely satisfying, all-powerful, living God who is an ever-present heavenly Father, whose steadfast love never ends, who shows mercy to the undeserving, who is the essence of kindness, purity, goodness, and from whom your very life and breath come moment by moment. Might I appeal to you 
The word of God is appealing you today to repent of living your own way and put your faith in Jesus. Church, it's important that we taste and see God's goodness in the gospel every day. When we taste God's goodness, we see God's glory, we're filled with God's joy, and we're sustained by God's hope. The power of God's goodness is that a single taste will have a transforming effect in our lives. Because it's in God's word that we find the power to put away sin and live in God's abundant goodness. Our second point is the putting away of sin. The putting away of sin. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, then Peter says we will put away sinful behavior. Verse 1 calls us to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. To put away sin means that we cast it off. We take it off like old, grubby work clothes, and then we get rid of them. We don't just pile them up in the corner where we can go back and put them on when we want to sin some more. No, we want to throw them away, burn them in the fire, put them away for good. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Kill it. Mortify it. In our day and age, the word mortified usually means that you feel so embarrassed that you feel like you want to die. But spiritually speaking, we need to mortify our sin. We need to kill our sin, put it to death. The mortification of sin is an active, is actively putting off sin and pursuing godliness. Now, we often think of sin as very obvious and outward things, okay? It's... Things like having sex outside of marriage or getting drunk or stealing or cheating or racist attitudes, homosexual activity, hustling, swindling, using drugs to get high, looking at pornography, adultery. What we think of as very outward and obvious sins against God. And we usually look at a list like that and we think, well, I'm doing pretty good. Most of those, right? Maybe pornography is still a problem now and then or I've gotten drunk recently. But for the most part, I'm doing okay. Well, first off, that sort of relative comparison falls short of God's call to be holy as he is holy. We need to repent and mortify these sins. We need to pray what we sang this morning. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. But the areas that Peter calls us to here are more subtle. They're under the surface. They're easier to overlook. We think of them as less serious. Jerry Bridges refers to these sorts of things as respectable sins. He wrote a book with that title, and I recommend it to you. It's a challenging and transforming book to read. These are sins that we don't give all that much attention to putting off because we're pretty comfortable with them little white lies that we don't think will hurt anybody that's deceit wishing in our heart that we had something someone else has that's envy but what makes this more dangerous 
is because we are comfortable with them. And we should never be comfortable with sin. That's like curling up in your sleeping bag with a couple of rattlesnakes. Sin kills. And if we overlook these sort of respectable sins at work in our lives, they can be deadly. The Bible warns us about sin because no matter how strong a Christian we think we are, we are susceptible to temptations. When we think we are safe, that's when we let our guard down and sin will win. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. We must be careful. Let the word of God speak to us about our sin. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, they're all contrary to the love that Peter says we are supposed to have for one another in chapter 1, verse 22. A sincere brotherly love where we're loving one another from a pure heart. So let's just evaluate our lives through each of these areas of sin. Starting with malice. Malice is anger that generates a desire for harm. It's wanting bad things to happen to someone else. We may not realize that it's there. It can start with a small offense. Maybe somebody does something to us that hurts us. Or maybe we just disagree with them and we begin to let that thing define their whole character in our minds. We move from not wanting to see them prosper to actually taking delight in seeing them fail. We, we might even be too mature to express joy at their misfortune, but in our heart. We know that when something bad happens to them, we don't feel compassionate for them. We think they got what they deserved. We wanted them to experience harm. That's malice. It's like a, it's like a parent warning their kid not to jump off the roof and then just in exasperation saying, well, I hope he breaks his leg. Maybe it's someone who got the job that you wanted or the title that you hoped for, or married someone that you wish you had married, or hurt someone that you loved, and somewhere in your heart, you hide the idea that you want them to pay for it. You want them to be unhappy, or at least unhappy as unhappy as you feel, or to have something taken away. That's malice, and we need to put all malice away. Deceit. Deceit is guile or lying. It's deceiving. It's crafty explanations to manipulate others or to avoid responsibility. Deceit's one of the ways that we try to protect ourselves from feeling blamed or from having to admit our own fault. We may use it to preserve our reputation or to get others in trouble. Kind of like a child who exaggerates what another child did. Or how a teacher may have treated them because they know that their parents are going to jump in with defensive and vengeful action. Maybe it's being less than honest about how long you were at the office because you actually went out for a drink with coworkers who you kind of find attractive, but you just told your spouse that work ran late. Or being less than honest about what you were looking at on the computer. Or it could be because of something you neglected Someone else is inconvenienced, but you lie and you blame it on an email malfunction or your administrative assistant or a person that you don't get along with. Deceit breaks down 
relationships. It undermines trust between people and it distorts our character. Satan is the father of lies and we are following the wrong father when we harbor deceit. We must put away all deceit and follow our heavenly father who will never lie because it's impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying one thing but doing another. Matthew Henry calls it being counterfeit, imitating something that is in a way that's not genuine. Do we act one way around a certain group of friends and then change the way we act or talk around other friends? Like our, our church friends and our school friends, or our work friends and our neighborhood friends, or our church friends who are more strict than we prefer, and our other church friends who understand where we're coming from, and they're more comfortable overlooking slander and hypocrisy. The Bible calls us to put away hypocrisy. Now, I know it's the day after Christmas. I'm not trying to be a downer here. <laughs> but the Word of God, it speaks to us. It's speaking to us today. And so let's trust Jesus and listen and realize that maybe the Holy Spirit wants to do a little surgery on us today. And it might be painful, but it might also save our lives to have some sin cut out. Envy. Jerry Bridges says this. This is a long quote, but he says, Envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Sometimes we just resent the other person having something we don't. But we don't just envy people in general. Usually there are two conditions that tempt us to envy. First, we tend to envy those with whom we closely identify, friends and peers. And second, we tend to envy in them the areas that we value most. Whenever we compare ourselves with anyone whose circumstances seem better than ours, we face the temptation to envy him or her. We may not even want the better circumstances of our neighbor or friend, we just resent their having them. Envy and resentment will tear us apart and break down the brotherly love that we are not only supposed to pursue, but to be enjoying together. So ask yourself, when is my heart stirred toward wanting something someone else has? There are many things that tempt us, and it might feel a bit cliched, but I'm going to mention social media here. Okay, let me say, I do not believe that social media is sinful. I do believe that our hearts are. And there's a lot of temptation to both feel envy toward others and maybe boast so that others feel envious of us. And that can drive a lot of what happens on social media. If we're trying to put off envy, then perhaps we should be more careful about going to the places where our envy is most stirred. Maybe looking at someone else's exercise results and how their body looks in their posts tempts you to envy. Or maybe we post exercise or fashion poses because we want someone or just people in general to be envious of us. We see how much fun everyone is having out on TikTok and we're sitting watching those videos home alone on a Friday night in our sweatpants with nothing else to do, and we're envious of what seems to be a, their lives compared to our own. And again, it's fine. It's fine to share pictures of your game nights and your 
date nights or concerts you've attended or your home decor and vacations or hanging out with friends. It's okay to feel good about those things and to want to share your delight in them and to express your gratitude to God for them. But it might be worth asking, why do I want everyone to know about this? Should I consider how it might be promoting a culture of envy? Or dare I ask, do I feel better when other people envy the image that I present about myself? Envy will keep us from loving each other with pure hearts. So put away envy. If you feel envious, ask God to help you to learn to rejoice with those who rejoice. And to be content in Christ and trust God for how he has blessed you. And if God blesses you, then receive what you have with thanks and don't only feel satisfied if everyone else sees it. And then last, slander. Slander is speaking about others in a way that tarnishes someone else's reputation. And we all do this whether we realize it or not. Commentator William Harrell says, The aim of the slanderer is the promotion of the slanderer at the expense of the one slandered. Slander is the opposite of that love which covers a multitude of sins. The opposite of covering a multitude of sins is talking about other people's faults. To make it a frequent topic of conversation, what someone else has done wrong. To spend time with people discussing the weaknesses and sins of a friend who is not there. To talk about what everyone really thinks about someone behind their back. Jerry Bridges again says, we slander when we ascribe wrong motives to people even though we can't see their hearts or know their particular circumstances. We slander when we say another believer is not committed when he or she does not practice the same spiritual disciplines that we do or engage in the same Christian activities that we engage in. We slander when we blow out of proportion another person's sins and make that person appear to be more sinful than he or she really is. Now that quote cuts me. I don't want to think of myself as someone who slanders, but I find myself in this. Blowing other people's sins out of proportion to make them appear more sinful than they are or surely more sinful than I am. Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Help me put off slander and love others with a sincere brotherly love. Beloved, the Word of God speaks to us. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that we heard about from our statement of faith is here today in the gathering of His people. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let Jesus search your heart and see what hides there. And then... Let your faith and hope be in God. Let the precious blood of Christ wash you clean. Let him purify your soul so that you can love each other with a sincere brotherly love and a pure heart. This is the grace of the gospel in putting away sin. And how does God do this? He does it 
by speaking his word to us. And that brings us to our last part, point, the longing for God's word. The longing for God's word. Now, Aristotle is credited with coining the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum. It means that if you remove something from a space, something else will fill it. So in physics, the best way to get air out of a glass is to fill it with water. You see this principle displayed if you ever clean your garage. If you make empty space, then all of the things that you don't need and you shouldn't keep, and all of the things that other people give you because they don't want it anymore, but they can't bring themselves to throw it away, they all come in and fill that space. We need to not just put away sin, but we need something else to take sin's place. There's a message from the early 1800s by Thomas Chalmers that has gained popularity recently. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive, the power to cast out something the expulsive power of a new affection. And he explores this idea, saying that if we put away one habit, we must substitute another desire and another line or habit of exertion in its place. And the most effectual way of withdrawing the mind from one object is not by turning it away upon desolate and unpeopled vacancy, but by presenting to its regards Another object still more alluring. Another object still more alluring. If you find something new to love, it will eliminate the first love from your heart. It's like in Why You Were Sleeping, Christmas movie, right? She falls in love with Peter, but she doesn't really know him, and he's in a coma. And then, during the week, she gets to know his brother, and then she ends up in love with Jack, because the love for Jack replaced the love for Peter. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. <laughs> Another object that's still more alluring. Peter says that we should put away sin by loving God's word. So in verse 2, he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now the milk here is not like in 1 Corinthians 3 or Hebrews 5, where we're called to mature from milk into meat. But rather, this is a positive metaphor of a deep desire to find our thirst satisfied and to be nourished by the Word of God. We see... The milk is God's word because in chapter 1, verse 23, it says that we were born again through the living and abiding word of God. And since we're born by the word, now as newborn infants who cry out in hunger for their mother's milk, so we should long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word so we can grow and mature into the salvation that God has given us. The point is that the Word of God is our life. It is our nourishment. It is our new love, the new affection that puts away old affections. It is the water that displaces the air in the glass of our hearts. The Word replaces sin. It casts it out, and it fills us with Christ. John Piper, in his book, Reading the Bible Supernaturally, which if you don't know, he's written like three books in the last five years. He's written like 1,700 pages just on the Word of God. Um, really great books, but in his book, Reading the Bible Supernaturally, 
It says it this way. It all starts with God's gift of seeing. The seeing gives rise to savoring, and the savoring pushes out the deceitful desires that tricked us into thinking anything is more satisfying than God, and that all-important seeing happens as we read the Word of God. In effect, then, Jesus, Peter, and Paul trace authentic change back to seeing and savoring the glory of Christ as the supreme treasure of our lives as we read the inspired scriptures. It transforms us from self-preoccupied, self-protecting, self-exalting people into Christ-like servants who long for the temporal and eternal good of others. Reading God's word is where we taste God's goodness and glory again and again and again and again. And that repeated tasting makes us so satisfied in God that our sin is put away. The result is we love one another from pure hearts with a sincere and brotherly love. Where God's word is, God is. Is When you read God's word, God is speaking to you. When you meditate on God's word, you're spending time with Jesus. And the more you taste of his goodness, the more you're going to long to be nourished with the milk of God's word. We want to get more and more. That's the kind of longing the word of God expresses and produces in us. So why do we find it so hard to read our Bible? Commentator Juan Sanchez says, if we don't crave the pure spiritual milk, it may be we are taking in so much of the world's milk that we're not hungry for the milk God offers. In that case, we should evaluate everything we're taking into our hearts and minds. Or it could very well be that we have forgotten that the Lord is good, in which case we need to turn to his pure spiritual milk so we can discover his goodness to us all over again. Remember, church, the Bible is not boring. We are lazy. Okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm confessing. I'm confessing that. I am lazy when it comes to the word of God. And that's why we need these verses to wake us up, to pull us away from the pig trough and bring us into the banquet table. If you feel like the Bible is boring, then you need to pray and ask God to show you that it is the living and abiding word of God that can take your diseased and limp and barely beating or stone cold dead heart and revive it. If you feel like the Bible is hard to understand, that's okay. Because the message of the gospel, which is the most important message and the only essential message in the world, is actually very easy to understand in the gospel. But some of the Bible is harder to understand. And some of it is really hard to understand. And we should accept the challenge. When you don't understand, work hard to try to understand. Read it again. Ask questions of it. Try to follow the logic. Pray and ask God to reveal it to you. Read the notes in your study Bible. If you don't have a study Bible, you just got money for Christmas, buy yourself a study Bible. If you still don't understand, read commentaries by good biblical scholars. Talk to friends. Talk to a pastor. You want to know Jesus, right? It's a relationship, and relationships take work. 
God is speaking to you in his word, and we should long to hear from him. How many times did Jesus say, he who has ears, let him hear? We should long to hear his voice, long to hear him speaking to us, to hear him tell us that he is good, and he's working out good plans in your life. We need to hear him tell us how much he loves us, enough to lay down his life for us. We need to hear him tell us that no matter how dirty we have gotten with sin, he has redeemed us and cleansed us and forgiven us. We need to hear that when we feel lonely, we are not alone because he is always with us and will never leave us or forsake us. Even when we're asleep, he doesn't sleep. He watches over us. We need to hear him tell us that there is a day coming when the world will pass away and God will bring his children into eternal glory and total satisfaction in his presence and it will be as it was always intended. We will see him face to face. That is the gift of God's word to us. We taste and see that the Lord is good. So this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow, open up your Bible. Don't skip it. Read a chapter out loud as a family at the dinner table, even if it feels weird to do that. Keep doing it until it feels normal. Encourage someone else this week with something you read in the Bible. The Bible will do great things in your life and in the life of your church when we open it and read it. So let's long for God's word because God's word is where we find the power to put away sin and live in God's abundant goodness. Amen.